In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, please be seated. Father James asked me uh, if I might this morning integrate some of my summer intensive chaplaincy experience at Central DuPage Hospital, where I spent three months this summer, and thank you for granting me that. Uh, but integrate that into the sermon and today's readings, and um, so I will attempt to do that, and it will hopefully keep me on point as I integrate instead of a, a rambling about my summer at the hospital. Um, first thing is I, I, I didn't like hospitals before I started the summer. I still don't like hospitals. However, when God sends you somewhere, uh, he gives you a love for that place and those people. And so I must say I love the hospital, particularly our community hospital. Uh, one of my numerous patients, uh, patient visits with was, was with a 100-year-old woman I will call Z. She had, I believe, congestive heart failure, and a, you know, at the age of 100, something is, is, is bound to start failing. And Z told me her story right out of college. She worked at the Joliet YMCA, and, and then she uh, moved to the, she was called to the Evanston YMCA, where she developed and ran its program for women, including non-white women. And I guess she was an early proponent uh, for so, of social justice, although that terminology probably would have been foreign to her back in the 1940s. Um, she was never married, she told me. She said, you know, our boys went out to, to fight the World War II. They were innocent when they went out as boys, and they came back as troubled men, and I just couldn't quite settle on one. Um, and, uh, and as we talked, she said, you know, Rob, I've outlived. She remembered my name, by the way. I visited her twice. She remembered my name, Rob. She was so alert, the second name. And I said, I've got to look at your name on the chart, and here you go remembering my name. Anyway, um, that's an aside there. But she had outlived everyone that she knew, and she was lonely. And she gave me her address in the hopes that I might visit her in Batavia, and I need to do that. And it, looked, it took a long time for her to tell me her story over two visits, and when she had finished, she said, oh, dear, dear Rob, I've been talking too much. What about you? What's your story? And I gave her the uh, Reader's Digest condensed version. For those of you who remember way back when, the Reader's Digest had that you know, condensed version of books. Anyway, I gave her that version with allusions to some of the challenges that I had faced, and as we said goodbye, she grabbed my hand and she said, you, Rob, are my brother. Conversations, life itself is often compressed at a hospital. There is an intensification and an awareness that not only of mortality, but of the brevity of life, the preciousness of both time and life, and the preciousness of people. And sickness, pain, suffering can bind us together even as they tear our bodies apart. So that within an hour or two, Z, a stranger to me when I came in, could become my, uh, my sister and I her brother. And we see something of this in today's passages from Matthew. If they listen to you, you have won your brother or sister. From Romans, Paul, so much affection in his heart, he said, love one another with brotherly affection. Ezekiel, the prophet priest who loves his people who are in exile. And, uh, and as a priest, he loves them and he cares for them. But as a prophet, he has to warn them. He has to tell them to turn from their wickedness and live. And these are not comfortable words of a priest. They are hard and loving words of a prophet to his people who have been so horrible that God has left the building. He's left the city. He's left the temple. He's abandoned them to their natural state, a state of utter defilement and abasement. And the elite of Jerusalem, who are now in exile, are asking, why, God? And Ezekiel is telling them why. They have brought it on themselves. God is present, but not in the way they want him to be. God is present to them, warning them through his prophet. 
God has left the city, but he's followed them into exile. It's the way God works. He leaves, but he doesn't leave us alone, especially perhaps when we're being horrible. We can be pretty rotten when we think we're being pretty good. Wealth, power, privilege can blind us to our own biases, our greed, our desire for pleasure, prosperity, our insufferable sense of rightness even as we are being wrong in our attitudes, our arrogance, our comfortableness. Sin anesthetizes us, and we don't even know. Uh, we had a teaching, many of you are familiar with the Johari window. I happen to have a rigorous teaching on it at the hospital. Uh, one frame of the Johari window uh, shows the things about us that are known to others but not known to us. In other words, our blind sides, our blind spots. And uh, I'll give you just one small but in, uh, uh, not insignificant uh, example from the hospital. I learned about, about uh, power differential and something very simple. Coming into a patient's room, I, the chaplain, neatly dressed. I don't generally dress neatly, but boy, oh, boy, every day, Tammy was saying, you look sharp, Rob. Um, so neatly dressed, I was feeling pretty, pretty proud of myself. And with the badge, and I'd come in the state, uh, standing above the patient who's lying down in a flimsy gown on a bed, and I learned pretty quickly to ask the patient if I might come up beside him or her and sit down in a chair so that at the very least we're on the same level and could just talk. Ezekiel warns his people in exile about their blind spots, as does Matthew when he says, but if your brother sins or your sister sins, go and confront him or her just between the two of you at first. There are, there are two textual variants in this verse. The majority of manuscripts add against you. If your brother sins against you, which changes a loving concern about a brother's spiritual danger into a personal grievance. I'm going with the broader definition this morning, sin in general, not sin against. This is the more challenging reading, I think. I mentioned to an acquaintance two weeks ago, not from All Souls, that I would be preaching this passage about confronting a brother or a sister and he said, I would never. Who am I to meddle and to judge and to correct someone? That is so presumptuous. Aren't we called to love? I said, yes, and this is love. It's a hard love that is about restoring a brother or a sister who's gotten bent out of joint, crippled by sin, and doesn't even know it. Uh, Tammy and I walk a lot. You'll see us often. The rough frost see us walking by their house all the time in Wheaton. And a few weeks ago, Tammy said to me, Rob, you're walking with a limp. And I said, no, I'm not. And then, am I? Well, yeah, you are. And I said, yes, I am. So I bought two pair of expensive running shoes, Hoka and Asics. You've got to try them out. They're wonderful. <laughs> and I alternated them for the, you know, five to ten miles a day. I walked at the hospital. And my, my muscles stopped hurting, wonder of wonders, and I stopped limping because I listened to Tammy. And the point Matthew is making is not ostracizing a member of the community, but gaining a brother and deepening the relationship. Love one another with brotherly affection, Paul says. And affection sometimes needs to be antagonistic to be truly affectionate. This is the hard love that shatters our illusion of well-being. And to win a brother or sister suggests that the person is in danger of being lost and has now been regained. And that's why Matthew talks in just a couple of passages previous about going out and saving the lost sheep. Shepherds delight in getting their sheep back. 
Our chaplaincy program had two core components, uh, clinical visiting patients and peer group consultation, during which time we got to know each other very, very well over three months. Uh, I, had, I had three cohorts, four of us total. It was an accelerated course in developing community with people very much unlike me. And we were invited to confront not just our mistakes, but our deeply embedded traits and tendencies. One of mine was sermonizing. I said, God forbid, I don't sermonize. <laughs> I guess I'm doing it now. <laughs> sermonizing to the patient. I know because I looked at my supervisor's notes and there it was, sermonizing. And also because she said to me, Rob, this was after a visit to a patient, we had to do a verbatim, which is talking about the experience. She said, Rob, you are taking the patient to your holy place when you should be going to theirs first. Boy, that was revealing to me. And together in that cohort, we, we explored our shadow selves, the dark places that we think are full of sweetness and light. And we call this a growing edge opportunity. And for a growing edge to emerge, a lot of plowing of hard and settled ground has to happen. Both churches and hospitals deal with sin and sickness. There is not necessarily causation between the two, but there are correlations and similarities. Sin is as pervasive as sickness in our lives. And often it's hidden, crouching tiger, hidden dragon. And like sickness, it's hidden until it's suddenly revealed. But the things that ravage us can also draw us together in kinship, family. The words kind and kin come from the same root. And sometimes kindness works through hardness, hard circumstances, hard and challenging words to bind a family together. We've experienced this at All Souls. Living in a family is challenging. Living in a community that is a family is challenging. We place high value on our autonomy and our privacy. I love you, but don't mess with my private life. I was so startled and challenged and a little bit troubled to read a guy named Adolf Harnack describe the early church as embracing the entire private life, a novel and unheard of thing upon the soil of Greek and Roman life. And two of the images for the wholeness of the church are body and family. Body, if I'm part of the body of Christ, along with you, what I do even in my private life has a direct impact on you, my brothers and sisters. That's sobering. Family is a place of belonging and identity where we love each other deeply and get into each other's faces and each other's stuff. Matthew's church is not a formal one. It's interesting here. In a formally constituted church with an appointed leadership, it's easy for ordinary disciples to hide behind the authority structure and to leave it all to the official leaders. Uh, appealing to Cain's question, who am I? Am I, 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 am I my brother's keeper? And the comfortable assumption is, uh, no, I'm not. But this passage asserts that the answer must be yes. In a community of little ones, that's what Jesus calls his disciples and the church, oh, you little ones, each must be concerned about and take res responsibility for the spiritual welfare, welfare of the other. And welfare in every way, care for the others, caring starts in the church and it extends out to the community. 
And we live in a bittersweet relationship, the sweet pain of brother-sister. I guess this makes me more brother Rob than father Rob. And this brings me to my last observation from the chaplaincy about the power of confession. Confrontation is also an invitation to confession. Sin is powerful and dangerous, unconfessed sin even more so, and confession is the surest way to restoration, both in our, in our lives and our corporate, our family lives, our life together, as Bonhoeffer called it. In the hospital, I heard many confessions from patients, not the formal kind you would say to a priest. We, we bring priests in, Catholic priests in for confession. But these were spontaneous outpourings of deep grief and pain and hurt and loneliness and of wreckage of their lives and the love for which they yearned. In the hospital facing so much uncertainty, the enormity of death looming, the deep desire to live and love and to be restored to relationships. There was a sense of urgency. Now is the time of confession. I talked to an alcoholic husband and father who had cirrhosis of the liver, who worked hard and drank harder and isolated himself from his family, who still loved him deeply and were visiting him there through the repeated visits I, I took to his room. And he confessed his entire life to me. His was an outpouring of deep regret and deeper love. And it was a beautiful thing and sweet thing to behold and, and witness. And it was an honor for me to be with this man. Confession is not the practice of judgment and shame, but of love and life. Turn from your wickedness and live. Healing happens at both the hospital and the church. Both are sacred places to which we bring our brokenness, the mess of our lives, of our relationships, and are restored to ourselves first, and then to one another, and we are made whole. And the work of healing draws into its tapestry religion, liturgy, ritual, psychology, and medicine, which are woven as one. And confession has a strong role in healing. Confession, religi religious and healing rituals of confession bear witness to the existence and not the denial of the darkness within each one of us. Healing is preceded by the act of confession. We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. How many times do I read that and say, I'm no sheep? Well, <laughs> until I get lost. Repentance heals, it amends and makes often reveal the bright stream when we stream into church or when we trickle into church. But we also bring the dark. In a church especially, I think you should be able to say to any usher, to anyone who greets you, I'm kind of a broken mess today. And that person who greets you should say, welcome, you're home with us. Uh, that kind of feels like the end of the sermon, but I have just a tiny bit more here. <laughs> it's an epilogue, I guess. Matthew lays out an intensification of confrontation if the recipient refuses to listen, ending up with treating them as a Gentile and a tax collector. And I thought to myself, well, who did Jesus want to hang out with, Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, that's another thought altogether. But what I thought here was, in other words, they're outside the church. They are in exile. And we know that the goal of exile throughout Scripture is to get the exile to turn their hearts towards home. And it is God who will turn our hearts and bring us home. Amen.